0: Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi Series, discovering the cutting edge science and research in psychedelic medicine.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast where we speak to leading industry experts, clinicians, researchers, and scientists to uh, unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Today, I'm really excited for our episode. I'm joined by Dr. Jeremy Wheat of Universal Gain. Thank you so much for joining us, Jeremy. I appreciate it.
0: You're welcome, Gareth. Glad to be here. Uh,
1: you know, you had a really dynamic presentation at our last Psychedelic Capital. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, for the people who might not be familiar with you yet... Could you just introduce yourself and a little bit about what you do?
0: Yeah, sure. So I'm Jeremy. I'm Chief Executive Officer of Universal Ibergain. Been on the job since June uh, this year. Been on the board of Universal Ibergain since February. Universal Ibergain will be the company that medicalizes Ibergain and makes Ibergain assisted therapy available en masse around the world, beginning with Canada. We're taking Ibogaine through clinical trials with Health Canada, uh, putting the application in first quarter next year. And we hope that within the next three to four years, we'll have full approval from Health Canada for medical Ibogaine for all that need it, if not sooner than that. Um, Obviously, there's a huge crisis with uh, opioid addiction in North America and other parts of the world. And it's just the case that ibogaine is the only molecule that can most effectively stop withdrawals and uh, ensure a rapid detox. So it's really, really needed medicine. Um, Unlike other molecules which are put through drug development, we know ibogaine is safe. We know ibogaine works. But of course, we appreciate the fact that it does have to go through clinical trials. So, um, yeah, we're looking forward to that. And at the same time, we're opening a first Ibergain clinic in Nassau, the Bahamas, in Q1 next year as well. So we'll also be a revenue business from early next year.
1: Wow, that's super exciting! You have a lot of really cool things on the horizon, and we're going to have a really great discussion about Ibogaine. And it's going to get really nerdy sometimes, uh, and I, I look forward to that. Talking about BDNF and GDNF and just some of the some of the uh, you know neurotrophic factors that this um, kind of modulates. But before we dive into all of that, if you could just give us you know a, a basic understanding of what Ibogaine is, uh, you know, and and the planet it comes from, and like you know, you talked a little bit about its context, but that would be great.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, Ibogaine is a plant-derived molecule. The main source, or the traditional source of Ibogaine, is from a shrub called Tabernanthe iboga. And Tabernanthe iboga is distributed across the Congo Basin. There is a sister species called Tabernanthe elliptica, which is found mostly south of the Congo River. And while Tabernanthe iboga is mostly distributed north, Ibogaine can also be extracted from many other plants, at least 30 other plants uh, from around the world. Uh, in the traditional context, uh, mostly in Gabon, it's used as part of an initiation rite called buiti. Uh, I've been initiated into buiti myself, and it's very much like a sort of African bar mitzvah. It's a coming coming of age ceremony, um, you know, marking the passage from sort of childhood into adulthood. Uh, was has a fascinating history outside of uh, Africa and Gabon. It was first used, uh, first isolated the molecule uh, in 19, early early 20th century in France by uh, Dubowski. And uh, yeah, there was a lot of research done in the French context. And it was actually used as a muscle stimulant tonic called Lamborghini. Uh, from the 1930s to around the 1960s in France. So it was sort of like an athletic stimulant. And then we flipped to America, and it was used under the MK Ultra CIA program, uh, Lexington Addiction Clinic in the 50s. Uh, the, the doctor in charge, uh, Harris Isbell, is quite a notorious figure uh, in that program. And then in sort of civilian life, it was... Um, discovered by accident, its anti-addictive properties were discovered by accident by a 19-year-old from New York called Howard Lotsoff, who's sort of like the granddaddy of Ibogaine in the West. Uh, He was very much a beatnik, experimental type guy, and he discovered that his heroin addiction had disappeared uh, pretty much overnight by taking Ibogaine. Uh, And so he sort of shared it among his experimental friends and then he sort of forgot about it and uh, went on to study film. And it was only in the eighties that he, his interest in Ibogaine was reawakened. And then he spent, you know, the last sort of 30 years of his life from the eighties to his death in uh, around 2010, really, really pushing for medicalization, medicalization of Ibogaine. He teamed up with uh, Professor Deborah Mash, who's still among us, Uh, She's a sort of emeritus professor at the University of Miami and she was the person who amazingly managed to get approval for FDA approval for clinical trials for Ibogaine uh, back in the 90s. Uh, Unfortunately, she only got partway through the clinical trials uh, for phase one and then she hit a a funding barrier and uh, NIDA, the National Institute of Drug Addiction, withdrew its funding support. And then what happened with ibogaine was it went underground, basically, and, uh, well, Dr. Mash went on to set up a clinic in uh, St. Kitts, and an ibogaine scene began to emerge in the 90s and in the 2000s in Mexico. Uh, And to this day, ibogaine has a thriving grey zone uh, status in Mexico. It's an unregulated molecule, so... There's at least 30 clinics in Mexico, probably significantly more. Most of them are just south of the border of San Diego in the Tijuana, uh, Rosarito Beach area. But there's clinics uh, across the world in Europe, in uh, in Russia, uh, in Asia um, and so on. So, um, yeah, there's many thousands of people that actually take Ibogaine at the moment, uh, who find out about it and, uh, you know, go to a clinic. But unfortunately, because there isn't a clinic in the world that's fully regulated and government approved. Uh, you're kind of taking a bit of potluck whether you, you know, you find a, a proper medically assisted clinic or, you know, more of a backstreet operation. It's really important. You know, one of the things I'll say, gweraf is that while I really welcome the decriminalization movement, of course, uh, psychedelics and in fact, all drugs should not be criminalized. Uh, Ibogaine is a little bit different or significantly different from say psilocybin or LSD in that it really does require uh, a medical program, a medicalization of pre-treatment screening for your liver function, uh, your heart function um, and uh, psychological assessment. And then while you're in clinic taking the Ibogaine, you know, you need to be hooked up to an EKG and you need to have eyes on the EKG and there needs to be ACLS-trained nurses and doctors, It's you know, it's an emergency procedure. And in that context, Ibogaine will pretty much always be safe. We have uh, Dr. Alberto Sola on our board. He runs a sky uh, clinic in Cancun. He's had nearly 4,000 patients and nobody's died. So I would say, Guaref, that while there is a sort of sheen of an issue around the cardiotoxicity of Ibogaine, and certainly, it does slow the heart rate down. Certainly, there is a risk of arrhythmia. Worst case scenario, torsade de point, which is pretty much when your heart, you know, the arrhythmia spiral out of control. All of those things are perfectly controllable in a medical environment. If you've got a trained doctor and trained cardiac nurses, is absolutely not a problem with, with ibogaine safety. Um, the other thing, without blabbing on too much, Gwaraf, the other thing, and we'll no, probably it. With, go ahead. Well, the other thing that I'd like to say is that, um, well, there's a a, a chemist friend of mine, a very, very bright young man, uh, and he's been been studying the molecule for a few years now. And he says that when it comes to ibogaine, you know, pharmacologically, it's like staring into the abyss uh, because it is an incredible molecule. You know, classical psychedelics are called classical psychedelics because they activate the serotonin receptor, 5-HT2A receptor. Ibogaine has some activation on that receptor site, but it's also targeting multiple receptor sites. NMDA receptor, um, it blocks a little bit like, uh, or a lot like, ketamine. Um, The sigma receptors, uh, nicotinic receptors, the three key opioid receptors of mu, kappa, and delta, which is why its sweet spot is interrupting opiate-based addictions. So it's really like uh, plugging on an EEG hat and uh, doing things with multiple receptor sites, which themselves internally relate to each other in a way that's more or less beyond contemporary neuroscience to to fully understand. So, you know, in in, um, pharmacological circles, the pharmacokinetics and the mechanism of action of Ibogaine is not fully understood. And it's fair to say there's competing theories about what's actually happening with with Ibogaine. So, yeah, it is an incredible molecule. Uh, It does perform pretty much a full central nervous system reset um, if at appropriate doses. Uh, It gives you incredible new brain plasticity uh, and uh, an opportunity for a new life. Ibogaine metabolizes, and this is the work of uh, Professor Mash again, its primary metabolite is called noribogaine, And noribogaine remains within the system for many weeks, basically. And it effectively functions as a slow-release, endogenous um, microdose system f- for the body. Um, and so it's really, really good post-ibogaine to go through you know, different forms of therapy, whether it's more the CBT to you know, recalibrate habitual responses to stimuli. Um, or more holistic forms of therapy, narrative therapy, and so on, because you do have this vital three to four months window of opportunity while the nor is still on board to, to modulate your your relationship to the world and your relationships with other people and you know where you are in the world and so on. So you know, like the reality check for ibergain is that if you don't complement it with pre-treatment therapy and aftercare. You know, it will give you a good shot, um, at, uh, an abstinence-free life, but uh, it is common for people to relapse after ibogaine if it's just the the molecule. So, you know, at Universal Ibogaine, we're we're very focused on um, a holistic service off- offering, which uh, you know, in the pre-treatment phase, sets you up for for your treatment, um, to have respect for the process, and to be prepared to make some significant changes in your life, um, and all the rest of it. And then immediately post-treatment to, to to support that recalibration of relationship to, to people, to places, to yourself and so on.
1: Wow, yeah, you brought up so many fascinating things that I want to touch on and talk about um, to give people uh, a little bit of an idea of how you know important this is in the, the demographic of people you're treating, you know, because of its ability to to significantly attenuate, if not completely alleviate, acute opiate withdrawal. Um, you yep. know, people on drugs like heroin and oxycodone, um, uh, Norco, I mean, they're, they're coming to, to use Ibogaine to be able to, to get through that withdrawal, but also set themselves up for a successful recovery. You know? Yeah, uh, and I think I think that's so fascinating because and and so important right now because the the opioid epidemic is really raging, you know, um, and and so what you're doing comes at an important time and and you, and you're right. Ibogaine is very safe when used in a safe context, you know, and as it, from my understanding, um, the heart issues and things of that nature can be avoided with proper pre-screening and the EKG, like you talked about, you know. Um, so I think it's it's really the, the landscape of opioid addiction is also changing so rapidly, too. There's a lot more fentanyl. There's fentanyl analogs in the, in the drugs now, and that's changing how important it is for you guys to, you know, detox patients before, stabilize them before they get the, the treatment, you know. Um, and then they get this medicine. It does this remarkable thing over the next eight to 12 or however many hours, you know, to where they uh, come out of it and they're not in acute withdrawal. And so, and and they are in this place of increased plasticity. So I think this would be a good uh, segue into maybe how how is your understanding of, uh, what is your understanding of how this happens, you know, uh, in the brain on a neuropharmacological level? I know we're still figuring it out, but um, it would be interesting to get your thoughts.
0: Yeah. So there isn't, um, you know, a conclusive answer to that. Clearly, because it's resetting the opioid receptors, and I, I believe the kappa opioid receptor is the key one that it resets, that is, you know, that's giving you a fighting chance of, uh, you know, you know, having a, you know, an unimpaired opioid uh, endogenous receptor system. The NMDA, I think, is really important. And I think what's going to emerge, Guaraf, is they'll be a sympathy um, or synergy between ketamine treatment and ibogaine treatment, and um, I think this is very, very cutting edge. Uh, so basically, the ketamine experience—you know, for, for a mainstream population who you know may not be that into going for a trip—ketamine is an incredible opening because it's pretty safe. It lasts, you know, less than an hour. Uh, it's not too an intense an experience at low dose, which is uh, typically the doses that are often offered at good ketamine clinics. But it dampens down NMDA glutamate receptor activity. Now, to my understanding, you know, not being a neuroscientist, but reading the literature as best I can, we don't fully understand, and I I stand to be corrected, but we don't understand how there's this paradoxical relationship between closing down the glutamate receptor, the NMDA receptor, and at the same time, increased neural activity. Because the NMDA receptor usually switches on and activates neural activity. So why switching it down leads to increased neuronal activity, we don't understand, but that's definitely part of why uh, ketamine works. And it's solidly in in the matrix of understanding of why Ibogaine works, is that it does reactivate brain circuitry. Um, Related to that, I suspect, and I, you know, I'm on thin ice because I'm not a neuroscientist, but one of the other competing theories about um, the mechanism of action of ibogaine has been postulated by a Slovenian guy called Roman Pasculin. And he's looked at uh, in vitro studies of injecting ibogaine into tissues and in vitro And what he's found is that ibogaine stimulates the production of ATP, which is the mitochondrial cellular energy system. So this is, to my understanding, completely outside of any neuronal receptor activation, whether agonizing or antagonizing. It's actually increasing cellular energy Um, so that... What does that do in terms of uh, input and a change to the central nervous system? And his research is very much around um, the gene expression switching that happens through ibogaine and through this process of increasing uh, ATP cellular energy. So there is um, there's a competing um, way into the effects of ibogaine. And I think the thing that uh, is most interesting of all is this uh, glial cell-derived neurotrophic factor. Uh, which is a bit of a mouthful, but basically a form of growth factor in the brain. Uh, one way of understanding the role of GDNF is its uh, helper cells, which come to repair um, brain brain damage. And in this case, what happens with the production of GDNF is a consequence of that is there's new dopamine dopamine cells which are which are sprouted within the uh, ventral tegmental area, the VTA. And um, which is in the kind of near the cerebellum, and then they get expressed through the rest of the brain. Um, so you know, in simple simple terms, you're getting uh, brand new dopamine ser- circuitry expressed through the brain, through the kind of engine house of this se- the cerebellum, the VTA, um, and so having uh, you know basically a new dopamine reward system circuitry. So you you get reset to that. So. I think yeah, the the, the multi-target brain receptors, the increase in cellular energy, and the production of GDNF, they may all be true, and they're working synergistically with each other. But it just shows you how complex ibogaine is. That um, you know some of the more recent studies on GDNF are a year old, maximum two years old. I think the other thing about GDNF and um, ibogaine is the potential for uh, addressing neurodegenerative disorders. So there's some uh, very interesting work being done at Stanford on ipergaine and uh, traumatic brain injury and PTSD. Um, so a bit like uh, MDMA uh, with MAPS, there w- may well be uh, an application for, for military veterans um, and, and people that have had other kinds of uh, brain injury. Uh, and also looking, obviously, at Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So there is some uh, initial pre-clinical work being done, uh, sort of anecdotally, with people with Parkinson's. And what we know so far is that the standard me- medicine for Parkinson's, which is called Sinemet, uh, when I when you introduce ibogaine, it re... Um, it, uh, increases the effectivity, if you like, or the efficacy of Cinemet. So Cinemet, when you first take it, if you have Parkinson's disease, to my understanding, Guaref, is it works and, you know, you're kind of, you know, you have a bit more um, activity, you know, sort of motor activity and all the rest of it, which is obviously affected negatively by Parkinson's. But then the Cinemat stops stops working after time. And Ibogaine, from what little we know of, of introducing Ibogaine to various people with Parkinson's, is it seems to reactivate the efficacy of, of the cinema. So working uh, you know, hand in hand with the cinema. So yeah, we're, we're at the very beginnings. Addiction treatment is the primary application that we're focused on at Universal Ibogaine. But I can well imagine that uh, in the next few years, we'll see Ibogaine's value for central nervous r- reset. Um, you know. Certainly, one of the things people have been talking about is the long COVID and the central nervous system damage that some people have. Ibogaine uh, in a microdose form may be a candidate application for that. None of this is to say that uh, in the future, and in the fullness of time, Guave, a an analogue of ibogaine may take over from ibogaine, which is less cardiotoxic. You know, I'm, I don't want to romanticize ibogaine. You know, there isn't an, an importance to to uh, you know, uh, drug development and research and we'll certainly, we'll certainly be there if there is a less cardiotoxic uh, analogue to ibogaine, we'll, we'll be all for it but having said that, I do, I do sort of like the fact that it is plant-derived and the, the ibogaine that we'll be using for our clinical trials will come from Vokanga africana which is uh, a tree which is more widely distributed around the world than iboga. Than it's perfectly sustainable um, so yeah, I do. I do have. I, I do like the link to to the plant based plant derived base of ibogaine at the moment, but I'm sanguine enough to accept that ultimately it will likely be replaced by uh, probably a fully synthesized version that's that's made in the lab.
1: Yeah, you could have fooled me about being not being a neuroscientist, man. <laughs> that, that's awesome. Uh, so many fascinating things. I really like the parallel. Um, neuropharmacologically between ketamine and, and ibogaine that you drew, I didn't know about that. So that's interesting. Uh, although I can kind of see that now that you, uh, you 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 talk about it, and I have heard about its NMDA activity. So that's really interesting that they can maybe be used in a um, in a in a together in some sort of fashion or, or for treatment. Um, I think it's ketamine has really been like the Trojan horse for psychedelics, you know, exactly. uh, and that's really interesting because. The way, the mechanism of how it works, Dr. Jeffrey Becker of Beckson, they're developing some interesting ketamine therapeutics, described it uh, with like a laminar flow analogy to where like the traditional psychedelics will kind of increase that pressure uh, you know, whereas like ketamine kind of like still producing that sort of psychedelic experience, but in a backwards kind of way without causing the anxiety that traditional psychedelics sort of cause. And I think it's so interesting because Ibogaine is not considered a traditional psychedelic. It's considered a dream inducer. In fact, you know, it's got an it's got another term. On, I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, Oniodesteroid or something like that, you know.
0: Oh, Neurogenic. Yeah, that's the oh. one. That's the one. From the ancient Greek on eros, for for the ancient Greek word for dreams, on neurogenic. Remogenic is, uh, you know, some of the French research, so there was a guy, uh, was it Raymond Guterrell? A prominent French researcher of ibogaine who, uh, he had an early mechanism of action theory, which was that um, ibogaine induces rememesis so uh, rapid eye movement, uh, dreamlike. Um, So he called it remogenic as well. Um, quite what he meant in terms of that being a me- an explan- explanation for the mechanism of action, I'm not sure. But I guess the idea is that um, REM sleep is generally important to us in terms of, you know, resetting the, the brain overnight in some way in terms of a lowered brain frequency and all the rest of it. So I imagine that Guterell's idea was, look, it's extending that REM-emetic uh, uh, period to allow for the brain to refresh itself and, uh, in a, in a longer term way.
1: That's really that's really interesting. And, you know, we're talking about BDNF and GDNF, you know, um, but we we know that these affect the architecture and and the actual structure of the brain, you know, and and to our understanding, um, the traditional antidepressants act on BDNF over time and are are thought to cause, you know, positive structural changes. Uh, So it's so interesting that, you know, um, began is shown to act on these molecules and so rapidly, right? I think that's like a really important thing, especially when it comes to uh, opioid addiction, addiction in general, right? Because the addict's mindset is uh, instant gratification and wanting to feel better uh, quickly. And, and that's especially understandable when you're in the throes of opiate withdrawal, because for the people that don't know what that's like, it's, it's pretty horrific. You know, the best way I've ever described it is first you're afraid you're going to die. And then you're afraid you're not going to die. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, no, so it's, it's really from... crazy that the iboga kind of enters the someone's system when they're in withdrawal. Uh, and it takes that withdrawal away. And, and maybe it's through its opiate uh, activity, even though it doesn't stimulate the opiate receptors like an opiate does, or it's like NMDA activity. And they kind of, whatever the case may be, the patient gets comfortable rather quickly. Uh, and then when the experience is over, they don't go back into withdrawal for the most part. Let's start something like methadone or Suboxone, which is a little longer, because of the longer half-life, it's a different thing to approach, you know. But um, just to give people an idea of how remarkable that process is, you know, it's,
0: Yeah, I don't want to to oversell it as well. You know, um, especially if you have a long acting opiate addiction, like you're on buprenorphine. Buprenorphine stays in the system for weeks. It's got a very long half life. And I think one of the things we're learning is that you probably need to switch over to a short acting opiate like morphine sulfate for many weeks in advance of your Ibogaine treatment. And I think this is where our protocol will evolve across time, but we're learning more that you need to have no buprenorphine in your system when you do Ibogaine. Um, Yeah, the other thing to say is, you know, if people watching this, uh, you know, are suffering from some kind of opiate or opioid addiction, is it's an unpleasant experience doing ibogaine you know with with psilocybin you know it can be lovely and spiritual and divine and yeah dark dark material shadow material can come up but it's all good same with ayahuasca with with ibogaine it's a much heavier duty experience so you know you can very typically experience ataxia which is basically you can't move your body you need to be helped to go to the bathroom you know you're puking up um you know, you're, you're dizzy when you open your eyes. So it's and, and then post the Ibogaine experience, especially for people, you know, coming from the opiate or opioid addiction background. You can feel like you're still in withdrawal, even though you're not because and what's happening there is because you're, you know, so much brain receptors have been um, uh, refreshed and reactivated and are back to a pre-addicted state you're feeling the body like you haven't felt the body for years, you know, if, if you've been hooked on heroin for years, you're just in this kind of sedated state where you're not feeling the pain of your body. Um, post-ibogaine, all of that's coming back so that while ibogaine is also an anal- analgesic am- am- amongst many other things, once the ibogaine has worn off and you're just on the noribogaine, you're back to being a normal human being with aches and pains. And so, uh, you know, I helped set up a clinic in uh, Portugal, Tabula Rasa, a few years ago. And, you know, seeing people, you know, hooked on heroin come through and then moaning about restless leg syndrome and feeling really uncomfortable uh, for days after the Ibogaine. So it's, yeah, it's a rapid detox like nothing else, but it's a difficult, it is a difficult process. And, in a way Gwarf, that flips us back to the pre-treatment therapy side of things the key thing about pre-treatment therapy is to really gear yourself up to run up that mountain you know as uh you know someone we both know anders says it's the hero's journey it's it's like you've got to take a run and jump and you've got to keep yeah. going and not give in um and realize you know that there's a pot of gold at the other side of the rainbow you know you know it's really important that you're, you know, you're, you're mentally strong and mentally tough to push through the days after ibogaine. The first day after the ibogaine for for people, uh, you know, heroin, opi- opioid addicts is called the gray day. You just feel like shit. Everything is just, you know, nothing is working. Nothing is right. So that day, it's really important to realize that's normal. It's part of it. You're fine. Everything's going to be great. The following day will be better. The following day will be better you will get through it. So it's really, I've come, you know, I've come in my time being fascinated and somewhat obsessed with uh, Ibogaine. It's a key tool in the process, but there's many other steps to that process. Um, You can't avoid that, especially if you've got the opioid addiction, but um, there's many many other steps in the journey before and beyond it.
1: Yeah, yeah. You bring. I'm really glad you you mentioned all of those things, and you spotlighted the importance of the other factors in the process. You know, I, I think it's dangerous to sell the idea that it's a magic bullet. Um, you know, because addiction is really something that that takes a, a consistent effort. You know, and and uh, and dedication, and discipline to to really tackle. Um, and these psychedelics can really be, uh, and, and I began in particular for opioid addiction, such powerful catalysts in that process, um, but they're still part of a larger process, you know. Um, so yeah, you, you, you brought up some good points, uh, particularly the feeling of pain afterwards, you know, and, and the just feeling of your emotions and sensations. Um, for the people that, do you have patients that come through that have chronic pain? And how do you advise them to deal with that after the ib- 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 Ibogaine treatment. That's gotta be a tricky thing, I'm sure.
0: Yeah, there there is a, a, you know, a class of people that are dealing with chronic pain. One of the emerging areas, I think, that's gonna be uh, intri- in- increasingly important for us is looking at the world of elite sports. Um, you know, whether it's hockey, American football, uh, basketball, uh, there is a kind of hid- hidden epidemic of uh, opioid pain pain relief which is basically almost required for you to stay in the game and stay professional and stay being an asset for the team. You you pop the pills basically and, and just push through the pain. So there's a sort of dark side to professional sports, which, um, you know, there is a lot of addiction to, uh, you know, OxyContin and all the rest of it. And so... While Ibogaine does reset you and get you off them, there is still the un- often the underlying issue of how to deal with the residual pain. You know, I've had people come through for treatment in Portugal. A uh, guy fell off a ladder, uh, you know, had a back injury and so on. So dealing with post-treatment chronic pain is absolutely key. I would say I don't have a full answer, but I would say that the answer is going to be either some kind of CBD or cannabis. uh, treatment or it's going to be along the lines of ketamine Uh, I know ketamine um, you know ketamine implants and patches are are, are in work so yeah dealing with chronic pain will be you know over to sister psychedelics or quasi psychedelics like those like those two Um, and possibly CBD CBG CBN whatever the CB combination is will be you know one of the uh, solution pathways to dealing with chronic pain
1: Wow, that's really yeah, that's really important and interesting that you you bring those points up. Uh, you know, I think it'd be cool to go backwards a little bit into your life a little more. What got you into interested in IB gain and uh, you know to where you are today? Like, what kind of inspired you to take this journey?
0: Yeah. So uh, as as I've said before, it was a conversation on a London bus, um, probably more than a decade ago. Where a friend of mine, Nick, mentioned, have you heard? You know, we were talking about psychedelics and our experiences, and he said, have you heard of iboga? And I hadn't. And as soon as I found out, it was from Africa. i had been living in Africa for many years, uh, probably fifteen years. I've lived in different parts of Africa, and. Across the time living on the continent, I got really sick of people being, you know, sort of negative about Africa and like just treating it as like a monolithic block of suffering, HIV. And, and you know, when you're on the ground anywhere in the world, you you quickly realize, you know, the magic and the fact that there's good people everywhere and incredible cultures everywhere. And that's that's what I found in my experience in different African countries. And anyway, long story short, Gaurav, as soon as I heard that in Gabon, there's this tradition called Buiti and it goes back hundreds of years, and through the Pygmies, thousands of years, um, if not tens of thousands of years. You know, they founded Boga in cave systems in Gabon. I, of course, wanted to know more, and that's what eventually led me to do an initiation in uh, in Gabon at Ebando uh, four, four or so years ago. And um, yeah, you know, when you when you go through that experience of going to Gabon. And you know, the 10 days of ever more intense ritual preparation for the aboga ceremony. And then you go through the aboga ceremony. I remember the the 24 hours after the finish of uh, the conclusion of my aboga ceremony. So you know, it starts around eleven o'clock and goes on till maybe twenty it goes on twelve hours, and then twenty-four hours after that. Um, I was awake at 4 a.m. and it started raining for about 10 minutes. And uh, Tatayo, who's this uh, wizened old French guy that uh, runs Ebando, is amazing human being. He said, "Yeah, that's uh, that's it was a good ceremony. It always rains when it's uh, you know it's been a good ceremony." And it was, and it's right by the beach. And anyway, you go through that set of experiences, and it's sort of like you have an umbilical connection to Gabon and the culture there, and uh, the, you know the fact that it's under threat. Um, the demand globally for boga has pushed up the prices locally. So, you know, it's tragic situations where people are substituting aboga for alcohol. And, you know, like I, yeah, I will always want to help. And with Universal Ibogaine, we will um, always try to support whether or not our Ibogaine is sourced from Tabernanthe Boga, and, and it likely will never be. It will always be important to to support Gamon and, uh, you know, keep this amazing culture and tradition tradition going basically because it is the source culture um my experience there maybe i got a tenth of a percent of uh wisdom from that because it was it's so complex it's again like i've said before it's like going to a tibetan monastery for a few weeks i mean how much are you gonna scratch of the surface of being in a tibetan you know spiritual culture for a few weeks probably a little bit but compared to the the sum corpus of yeah. of knowledge i also remember um you know, the uh, the the shaman figure who was leading my ceremony, uh, he was speaking very rapid French. Uh, I could pick up some of it, but not all of it. And he, one of the things he said that stuck with me, uh, Guaref, was, you know, uh, Buiti and Iboga, it's not book knowledge. You can't just read up on Iboga and then somehow think you're an expert. It's something that you do with your body through practice across time. So again, yeah, it's not this kind of textual Western way, you know, cognitive, you know, information that you somehow download. You have to serve, you know, if you're if you're going to be, you know, working as a shaman in the Boiti context, uh, you're going to have to spend 10 years apprenticeship minimum. And even then, you're just at the entry level of, you know, kind of the priesthood effectively. So, yeah, it's it's a it's a working body and a working tradition uh, with with, uh, you know, deep, deep spiritual knowledge. And again, I think the link with Tibet Tibet is of interest because, you know, with Tibet, Tibetan Buddhism and the, the Bon tradition that comes before it, there's a pretty intense mapping of the post-death state, you know, the Bardo states. Um, there's a whole sort of understanding and mapping of the post-death states. And again, with Buiti, it's very much about going into the ancestral realm, you know, passing the, the veil into the death realm and so on. So. You know, who knows? I think at a very deep, human spiritual level, the Tibetan Buddhism and buiti are somehow uh, spiritually uh, one or entwined with each other.
1: Yeah, you know, it comes from these plant medicines. uh, So many of them they come from such rich cultures. You know, and uh, and indigenous people and the. Uh, people of those tribes that have carried these traditions and brought them forward have so much to teach us. And it's so interesting because, you know, we're trying to figure out in this psychedelic renaissance, how are we going to train our clinicians properly to administer this medicine? What are are the best pre-treatment or post-treatment therapy modalities look like? We're trying to figure all these things out. And like, I keep seeing that we can just turn to the cultures that these medicines came from and how did they train the people that administered the iboga you know they didn't just it wasn't just anyone like you're just talking about it took a lot of years of training you know uh, and they didn't just give them iboga you know it was part of this ritual and ceremony that was so deeply spiritual and uh and and it just had really deep roots in their cultures and their tradition and you know it's, it's often talked about that the Bwiti tribe uh, they don't have a word for addiction you know, or yeah. depression, that those two words don't exist in their in their lexicon, which I think is so fascinating. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I think you should talk a little bit about that and how we can, like, you know, go turn to the witch holes and, and learn about peyote and the best way to, you know, use utilize that. And then you brought up a really good point about sustainability, too, and, and taking it not from the tabernacle, Boga, which I thought was a really, really mindful and uh, conscious way to approach this, you know.
0: Yeah, no. Um, oh, this is this is the juicy bit of this whole thing. And it doesn't, doesn't feel like work, basically. So one of the things we're working on Gwarath at the moment is we are started. We've started a, a private seminar series, if you like. You know, there's, there's a lot of uh, psychedelic conferences. You guys put on the best, of course, uh, microdose But um, there is not so much a space for Holistic practitioners interested in psychedelics to talk outside of a, you know, a com- conference, you know, sort of showing off So last week we kicked off and we had a, a group of 12 people on a call And what we're talking about there is not directly programmatically relevant to what Universal Ibogaine does. It's much more look, let's kick off a conversation about traditional indigenous healing practices Uh, In this case, specifically, we're starting with uh, with Canada and First Nations. And let's look at how those holistic practices, the ones which have fully recovered, the ones which need more work to, you know, fully recover them, how they can be a healing opportunity for people from disadvantaged marginalized communities like indigenous communities in North America, So what would it take for for healing to be available through ibergain and other plant medicines in in an indigenous context? And also, what would it take for those contexts themselves to set up holistic healing businesses for outsiders to come? And there's so many issues involved in that. Um, It's important not to be naive and romantic about all the issues involved, uh, structural poverty, You know intergenerational and likely epigenetic uh, uh, trauma from you know the brute colonialism of the um, the school system the residential school system where people were separated from their families which is very recent memory that it was ended so introducing ibogaine and other plant medicines in those contexts needs to be very very nuanced it needs to be needs driven you know from the people so we're as an example, you know, it's baby steps, basically, as an example, there's a, um, a prominent lodge in central Canada, I won't name it for now, but there's some very esteemed knowledge keepers in that lodge, uh, indigenous people from all over the world go there, and, you know, from a universal Ibogaine perspective, it's like, great, you know, there's this lodge, we can, you know, send off an NDA and do a joint venture and, you know, help them set up a holistic business based on what they do. uh uh-uh. It doesn't work like that. You've got to come from their perspective. Um, The very first step in working with these people um, is to go into ceremony with them. And that ceremony will be private and they will call on the ancestors. And anyway, we're up for that. We have uh, Chief Campbell on our board. He's a hereditary chief of the Squamish nation and also an elected chief. Um, We have other First Nations cycling around and this this seminar series is, is likely to grow so that you know we've got a run-up of maybe three or four years before uh, ibogaine's available medically in uh, in Canada approved by Health Canada and by that time issues like okay so if you're going to have holistic healing clinics in different First Nations bands um, across Canada like and, and you want to make sure that the people working in those clinics are First Nations people then there's a whole training pedagogical aspect which needs to be dealt with so yeah, there's there's a and and then just in terms of the aftercare and having a supportive aftercare and making sure that you know people don't immediately go back to the disadvantaged living circumstances that they have. So we're you know we're not naive about this and we're aware that it's a long conversation. We need to just listen to people, figure out what's already on the ground, what's working, what's not working, um, and then embed in, in across Canada. You know, in terms of the current harm reduction paradigm, how does Ibogaine insert itself into, into the harm reduction paradigm, and you know the final final thing there, Guarrif, is that because ibogaine is Schedule One in the U.S., it may take quite a while, while to reschedule it and take it out of the sin bin. Um, and of course, there'll be uh, pressure against it anyway. So, strategically, what we figure is: look, you know, we set up a chain of ibogaine detox clinics, um, either our own or franchised across Canada. Um, Also aftercare, holistic aftercare provision in First Nations, uh, indigenous settings and non-First Nations settings. And then we have like an infrastructure which will uh, be of benefit for all North Americans. So, you know, at the moment, uh, Americans, you know, find their way south across the border to to Mexican clinics. But we'll have the opportunity for Americans to, to, to go north um, to reg- well-regulated, very holistic um, ibogaine clinics.
1: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I, as usual, there's so much I want to comment on. Uh, the thing that comes to mind right now is when we were talking about sustainability. Um, you know, I need to. I need to write this. I completely lost my train of thought. I'll write uh, this time point down so we can edit this out. No words. What was I going to say? Okay, I think I want to pick up where you were. You were talking about. Um, like the practices that we can take from these tribes and these cultures, you know, uh, and kind of how rich a history it is that, uh, that that they originate from. And it's interesting that you, you know, collaborating with the First Nations uh, and setting up the, the infrastructure to make this possible. Uh, oh, accessibility is what came to mind. You know, a lot of people yeah. today, uh, when they think of or, or they have a desire to do iboga, they generally, especially in the, in the United States, have to travel uh, to another country. And it's not necessarily the, the cheapest, most affordable treatment um, for for some people. Um, how, how do you what's your advice to them? And How do you see this becoming more accessible to people in the future, uh, especially if it's going to remain schedule one for a while in the United States?
0: I can't deny, Guaraf that we know we're not going to solve the accessibility issue overnight, and we're at risk of being, um, you know, a victim of our own success. If if we raise the awareness of Ibergain too quickly, then it may be that there's just not enough bed space um, that that we have for for people. So I'm pretty critically aware of that. Um, We're we're setting up the clinic in the Bahamas next year, there's another Caribbean island that uh, has just legalised psychedelics that we're we're talking to. Um, We're looking at an Ibogaine aftercare facility across the border from Tijuana uh, for for aftercare. But yeah, none of this um, in the short term ahead of medicalizing in Canada is going to be able to respond effectively to growing awareness and demand for Ibogaine. So we're going to have a period, and it just is what it is, of two to three years, however long it takes for Health Canada for us to go through the clinical trial process, and hopefully it can be a lot sooner than two or three years, you know, just as just to, to take a sidestep into the clinical trial timeline. We hope to complete the clinical trial application by end of first quarter 2021. We would like to begin enrollment by third quarter 2021 at the latest. We anticipate something like a 20 person phase two, two people per month in the same clinic. So it may take till realistically the end of 2022 to complete phase two. Then put the clinical trial application in for the final phase, which is multi, multi-site multi as you know. Um, we hope that we agree with Health Canada, a relatively small cohort size for the phase three. Um, and that could, if all the ducks are in a row and everything is as efficient as possible, take eighteen months. That's that's you know probably the most aggressive available timeline. So you're still looking uh, you're still looking at twenty twenty four. So there is this anyway to go back to the topic. There is going to be two or three years of frustration where people are likely to, more people are likely to have heard about ibegain, and they simply you know they'll probably find themselves going um, across the border. To Mexico. Now, another thing, another point I wanted to bring up, Gareth, was that you know, uh, decriminalisation, while of course it's really important that uh, all drugs, not just psychedelic drugs, are, are not subject to uh, you know the criminal code, the decrim movement in America, from specifically an game perspective, does have some risks associated with it. We've seen already there's a YouTube uh, little clip of uh, a guy going, checking himself into a hotel. I, I believe it might be uh, Denver. And there's some random guy sitting on a twin bed in the same room. And there's someone on uh, FaceTime, the provider, and he you know pops the Ibogaine. And the guy on FaceTime is, it's yeah, you, you can find it on YouTube. And it's it's rather alarming in the case of Ibogaine that uh, wow, this might yeah. be an unintended consequence of decriminalization. So... You know, definitely anybody involved in the decrim movement, you know, kudos to you. Amazing work. But specifically for Ibogaine, I worry that, you know, if there's an adverse event or God forbid somebody dies in one of these decriminalized zones in America, it might just uh, hamper rescheduling Ibogaine um, still further. So there's a bit more work to be done in terms of making sure there's... uh, you know, a supportive regulatory framework at state level, specifically for iBergain provision in uh, decriminalized zones in the states.
1: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right, and it's something that we're trying to just collectively, I think, do so much better this time and so much more mindfully than the sixties and seventies in the psychedelic renaissance, you know, is, is to make sure everything does go as smoothly as possible. Uh, And we don't have to undergo more decades of prohibition because we saw how damaging that was, you know? Um, So yeah, I think it's important to be really mindful and like when we're talking about it being more accessible, we're talking about safe access, you know, Um, because because it is very unique in the sense that it does cause this ataxia. It does have; um, it could potentially have cardiotoxic interactions if there's not proper screening. And then the the, the demographic that it's being used for, the situation it's being used in. It. It's not just you're going to take some mushrooms out with some friends at a camping. It's you know, it's it's the, these people are coming um, because. Usually, it's a last resort, you know, um, like rehab or anything. It's usually a life or death situation for these people, you know. So that's something to to really keep in mind as well. Uh, is is we're working with a really fragile demographic that that we really want to optimize and the, the chance of success, and for the whole movement at large, you know. Um, yeah man we've had such a fascinating conversation uh, I, I, I look forward to always speaking with you i always like to give my guests the the last word you know a, a message that you want to share with with people i would love to for you to just share that and maybe to the still suffering addict out there you know that's thinking about doing iboga uh, you know what what where your what is your message to them
0: oh uh, yeah there is hope Especially if you're, yeah, if you're hooked up on an opioid, oxycontin, buprenorphine, uh, methadone. I, you know, I have been fortunate in my life that I have not become addicted to these things, but I completely have compassion for where you are and how hopeless and how dark the days might seem. I hope I haven't overselled Ibogaine here, but it will release you from the chemical handcuffs of your situation. Uh, there, there, it is possible at the moment to choose wisely among the Mexican clinic scenes uh, ahead of full medicalization in Canada. Um, uh, yeah, just if you are looking online, make sure that you do good due diligence and that you get, uh, you get to possibly speak to people that have been to the same establishment. Uh, yeah, I, I, the, the, the more general last word I'd have, Guaraf, is Ibogaine's time has come. People do disparage it, um, you know, rival psychedelic companies, and I understand that because they're promoting their, their interests, but in a medical context, it's perfectly safe. It's the only way you're going to get off your opioid addiction or your opiate addiction, and it's time has come, and... Well, mark my words, maybe somebody uncovers this in five years' time or 10 years' time, and we will have seen to have been right that by the end of this decade, uh, widespread ibergain provision will be available across the planet.
1: It's a really bright and exciting future and one I certainly look forward to. Um, Thank you so much, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for coming on the show. Um, For the people that are interested in connecting with you, uh, where can they find you on social media or your website? It'd be great if you can just share that.
0: Yeah, universalibogaine.inc for for the company and Jeremy Wheat uh, on Twitter and Facebook and whatnot.
1: All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, everybody. This is another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast where we interview leading industry experts, clinicians, scientists and researchers to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. Thank you so much to Dr. Jeremy Wheat of Universal Ibogaine for coming on the show and we'll see you all next time. Thank you.
0: Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series brought to you by Microdose and the Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.